0: I'm Natalie Alexander, and welcome to The Next Page, the podcast of the United Nations Library, Geneva. Happy New Year to you all. This is our second episode for 2020. It's a new year, but our podcast continues its aim to advance the conversation on multilateralism. And today's episode is part of our book talk series. Our director at the library, Francesco Pisano, sits down in the studio with Ambassador Amandeep Gill for a conversation about his book published in 2019 called Nuclear Security Summits, A History. And this book looks at how nuclear security has developed over the period from 1945 to 2006, as well as how it's evolved in practice in more recent years through the Nuclear Security Summits between 2010 and 2016. Ambassador Gill has a range of experience in this field and in others, having taken part in three of the summits, and he previously served as India's ambassador to the Conference on Disarmament in Geneva, among other roles. We have more information on his bio in the podcast description. But for this conversation, he shares what his book is about and why he thinks the Nuclear Security Summits changed the domain of nuclear security through driving what he calls nuclear learnings and knowledge-making. He touches upon ideas around collective intelligence, the role of leadership, and also knowledge communities springing up around the topic, and how such negotiations can also be translated to other multilateral domains, such as negotiations in climate change and artificial intelligence. We have links to Ambassador Gill's book and several other resources in the podcast description if you'd like to find out more. But for now, enjoy this listen to episode 18.
1: Welcome, everyone, to our podcast, the next page here at the library. Today, I have the privilege of being the host to a friend, a former ambassador for Disarmament, ambassador of India, Amandeep Gill. Amandeep, welcome on the next page.
2: Thank you, Francesco. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: It's an honor for us to have you here, Amandeep. Amandeep is here as an author today, but as I said, also as a former ambassador of India for Disarmament. Amandeep, tell our listeners a little bit about you so they know who you are.
2: So I'm a a diplomat uh, and I've worked for two and a half decades in the quadrilateral of technology, politics, security, and international uh, norms. Uh, So I've served in uh, Sri Lanka, Tehran, Geneva. India and uh, traveled the world negotiating bilateral, multilateral uh, agreements. In the last couple of years, uh, life has taken a turn back to my roots as an engineer. So I'm an electronics engineer by training and two, three years I've been working a lot on AI issues, AI, artificial intelligence related issues and digital policy issues Uh, so i uh, was the executive director of the un sg's un secretary general's high level panel on digital cooperation uh, the past year and today i'm leading a new multi-stakeholder initiative on digital health and ai research collaboration for health at the graduate institute here in geneva where i also teach a class uh, an interdisciplinary masters on arms control
1: Fantastic. With all this background, now our listeners will understand much better the importance of this work that you just published with Paul Grave. And the book title is Nuclear Security Summits uh, History. So it really focuses on the nuclear security summits. So before we go into the heart of the matter, I assume that nuclear security in general is a forest of mysterious acronyms to most of our listeners. And it is certainly, for me, for example, I don't know all the ins and outs of this discipline so tell us about the book in general why you wrote it and perhaps if you could help us understand better what nuclear security is
2: so if you look at uh, nuclear energy nuclear power nuclear reactors uh, there are chiefly two concerns one is the safety concern which is about bad stuff getting out and impacting the people the environment The other concern, which is the security concern, is about bad actors getting in. Non-state actors, terrorists, either getting in physically or these days even hacking into, uh, getting in in a cyber sense, uh, virtually into the controls of the nuclear reactor. Now, I should also draw a distinction between nuclear security and what's been my dominant focus for a long period of time, which is nuclear disarmament and nuclear arms control. Now, Even if you were to, with a magic wand, take away all nuclear weapons, nuclear energy, nuclear material and nuclear facilities would still be around. Even if you were to shift away from nuclear power, and some countries are doing that, you would still have extensive uses of nuclear material, cancer therapy, diagnostics, and so on. So it's important to secure the materials, the facilities that use those materials. It's important to secure the knowledge that people have in their heads about nuclear issues, so that this cannot be misused. It's a concern That could be extended to other technology spaces, uh, biotech, for example. So I think it's an important issue of public
1: concern globally. So let's go into the heart of the matter. In your book, you argue that this set of nuclear security summits, on which the the book focuses, from 2000 to 2016, actually changed the, the entire domain. They imparted an evolution force on the domain of nuclear security. Tell us how did it happen and what are the main learnings in this process? Right.
2: So nuclear security had been around for a while, since the 1970s at least. There were concerns about rogue commanders, rogue actors in the nuclear weapon space and then as nuclear power started to develop there were concerns that people could misuse the material that's there but this was a conversation that was like a basement level conversation where very very technical people were involved it was not a political conversation in the 1970s some of the fundamental instruments started to come together in Vienna where the International Atomic Energy Agency is. Uh, So there was a step up, but still the political consciousness was not there. That changed with the the dissolution of the Soviet Union when there was concern that scientists could, and fortunately, all those concerns did not materialize, but there was a shift. There was a focus on nuclear smuggling in particular, storage of uh, such material security around storage. And the conversation started to move up the awareness levels in a political sense. Another shift was with the 9-11 attacks where terrorists for the first time showed intent to inflict casualties on a mass scale. So it was not easy, it was not difficult for people to imagine what would happen if terrorists had access to weapons of mass destruction or related materials and therefore a new sense of urgency developed around it. But I think The book really focuses on what happened when President Obama came onto the scene. A young senator, a very articulate speaker who had been in his early formative years very interested in things nuclear and who had, in a sense, been mentored by some of the senators who were involved with the post-Soviet Union nuclear security efforts. Uh, So he picked this up as a theme and came up with the idea, he and his team came up with the idea of a multilateral summit. And from the beginning, they wanted it outside the UN, but linked to the UN. Uh, So it was a new approach to multilateral work on uh, what was uh, a growing concern. And what fascinated me as an early participant in this exercise was, you know, how come since the San Francisco meeting on the charter of the UN, so many leaders come together for the first time to focus on one issue, not another issue, not climate change at that time, not other, other issues, and how that whole process was put together. And let me say a few words about that process. Now, it was important to go up from the basement of technical experts, bring in other communities, the intelligence community the interior ministries the security community around bad actors Uh, you had to bring in not just the nuclear power community into the equation but also the disarmament arms control community because what happens to material eventually has a relationship with negotiations on fissile material cutoff treaty production of stopping the production of nuclear material for weapons and delineating the civilian side from the military side and getting a better handle on the uh, military side. So I think the power of the process was in bringing together these different communities and putting them together in a kind of a not too hierarchical flat process where knowledge-making accelerated, where the slow process of multilateral knowledge-making was kind of put on steroids. And the fact that you were having these summits every two years kind of brought a renewed sense of urgency to the knowledge making. And since you had to go back to the leaders every two years and say, uh, sir, madam, now we have this summit and this, you, know, you couldn't just say with uh, say nothing. You had to come up with some novelty each time. So there was an iterative pressure for learning. And that fascinated me as well. And uh, from the trenches, you know, having participated in three nuclear security summits, I decided to step back a little bit and try and make sense of this knowledge making and relate it to my experience
1: as a negotiator in different bilateral and multilateral forums. And indeed, there is this relationship you you built in your pages in your book between the multilateral sphere and what is the subject matter that was discussed in the in the nuclear summits along the way? The main point in the conclusions of your book is about actually nuclear learnings. And you argue that there are at least three levels in which this learning has occurred. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about those?
2: So as individuals in societies, in our family, in uh, in our schools, we learn. We learn all the time. And learning in many ways is never a solitary exercise. I mean, except for ascetics and mystics, we don't go into caves and sit in silence and learn. Learning is a group exercise, is a collective intelligence exercise. And learning kind of moves from ideas in the heads of people to a conversation in groups, to discourse, uh, and to some kind of institutionalization of that discourse, the practice of a field starts to speak its own language, you know, whether you are a medical doctor, or a librarian, uh, or an arms control diplomat, there is a, a language that you construct. And at the end of the day, according to many scholars, learning is language learning, it's learning the language, the discourse of a particular field. So nuclear learning and nuclear weapons are, in a sense, the ultimate abstraction in international relations. They embody extreme violence. And fortunately, for the international community, they have not been used since Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, touchwood. Therefore, We can talk about nuclear weapons and arms control diplomats talk about nuclear weapons and the power aspect of it comes alive in repeated performances in multilateral bilateral forums, there is never a resolution of the power conflicts. Uh, We can see that from what's happening in the negotiations, in the discussions, but each time there's a temporary resolution and then the performance gets repeated. So I call this a theater of talk, which meets a theater of knowledge. So the discourse shifts and that's knowledge making in a nuclear learning context. To be more specific, nuclear learning is really studying the change in the way uh, governments international organizations, and other actors approach nuclear weapons and related materials and facilities They have political views on these issues so it's not about tactical changes if it's just tactical shifts then it's just change it's not learning you're not reframing or re-ideating the concepts uh, so in my book i describe ways to understand the shifts in discourse understand how knowledge is made and these three levels are a useful tool to understand this three table game so there is the uh, public sphere which is open which is accessible to uh, the common man and woman and so this can vary in scope and intensity in composition across countries and across issues, but it's essentially what you see discussed in newspapers, what NGOs speak about and what individuals write about, organizations discuss. And from here we move on to what I call the political sphere, where a degree of policy making happens domestically. So these are discussions inside Senates and Parliaments, inside. Uh, bureaucracies, where a degree of formality comes in uh, and there is a degree of aggregation of ideas and picking up of things and dropping off other things. So there is decisions around what to focus on because there's a lot in the public domain and what not to focus on and how to do it. And uh, some of it may be formalized in nuclear doctrines, for example, in statements. Some of it may remain occulted Then the third level, and this is where uh, most of my focus has been, is the international level or what I call the diplomatic sphere. And this is not just about diplomats, but it's about leaders. Uh, It is about scientific leaders as well, or negotiators who may be diplomats in uh, policy forums. And what moves ideas through these three levels is power so influence uh, power in its various forms intention influence selection or even the discipline of practice that is a kind of power moves ideas through these uh, levels and uh, the forums the bilateral or multilateral forums that constitute the diplomatic sphere are like a stage for the play of these ideas they are like theater And in a sense, many of the performances are ritualistic. You know, you look at the NPT meetings or statements in the conference on disarmament here across the corridor. So there is a ritual dialogue that embodies and symbolically articulates this uh, learning. And as I said earlier, the power relationships inherent in this field are temporarily resolved. There's a provisional resolution of the power struggles till the next time. So this keeps on repeating. And then forums like the NSS, they kind of challenge the existing forums on knowledge making. Uh, They are not paradigm shifting. Nuclear security summits were not paradigm shifting. There is another paradigm shifting attempt that has taken place recently, but they just push the boundaries of knowledge construction. They bring new domains together. And in this way, knowledge accumulates over successive iterations of this activity and the theaters of talk and the theaters of knowledge overlap. And if I may say, this is not unique to the nuclear field. Something like this happens in the climate change domain, in uh, the digital policy domain, where I've been uh, involved for the past two, three years. So there are larger lessons for what works or what does not work in terms of multilateral negotiations.
1: Maybe we should open a parenthesis at this time because we just hot from another yet another COP, Conference of the Parties in the area of climate change. Do you think as a diplomat, having studied the summits and participated in so many multilateral fora, that there is something that the two fields can learn from one another in whichever direction.
2: Right, absolutely. I think if you look at what I describe as the drivers of learning in my book, you can transpose that to the climate change domain. Uh, the first driver of learning that I describe is the leaders themselves. So if the leaders are not involved... Uh, And you see from Twitter and from many other domains today that the leaders are really engaged on climate change. Uh, The new uh, European Commission has made this a priority. So you see that reflected in the discourse of leaders. Prime Minister Modi's emphasis on solar power, for example. So these are examples where leaders get engaged and therefore learning accelerates. Then there is a role for well-designed forums so if our forums can be designed to promote learning they bring in the right actors the rules of procedure the processes are such that facilitate this cross domain engagement of knowledge making communities then again knowledge uh, speeds up and of course you know there are some other drivers that could be shifted across uh, domains and one very important one for me is the role of epistemic communities the knowledge communities that spring up around a particular issue if you don't invest in them by the appropriate teaching capacity building or what you do here at the library you know bringing together experts to to generate cross-domain knowledge then we will not have the human resource to propel learning through these uh, forums. so these are some ideas that can be now what, one thing i want to mention is that in any field, there is the stasis, the inertia of the existing paradigms, forums, where uh, the secretariats get used to a certain way of doing things, the diplomats, practitioners get used to just coming and reading out statements. So you need to disrupt that a little bit. And that is where either a powerful actor from the inside has a role, as a norm shaper, as a norm entrepreneur, or a disruptor from the outside has a role. Uh, And I would like to see more uh, such disruption happening. And also I like to see more of the knowledge making role devolve onto the communities, the secretariats working in these uh, forums. So having looked at the historical aspects of this, I can tell you that In the old days, uh, there was much more interest in substance in the secretariats of these communities, uh, in in these forums. Uh, And in some forums, in Vienna, for example, the scientific side, the ground-truthing side of things is much more involved in the policy side. That also helps to provide a kind of basement for the knowledge that's generated. So there is nonsense and there is scientific sense so you know you can sift the nonsense from the scientific truth and kind of accumulate it park it with a neutral trusted intellectual third party which is often the secretariat or
1: the knowledge community around a a particular forum i sense that for you as a specialist in multilateral negotiation writing these books was a journey of knowledge i i would be interested if you could share with our our listeners What did you learn yourself in the process of writing this book, researching, going back in the memories of your experience as a diplomat and turning them into, you know, writing on pages? What did you learn along the process? Uh,
2: One very interesting lesson for me was uh, talking to these colleagues whom one kind of battled with in the negotiations. You know, we had different positions, so we would argue and uh, almost fight over words and so on. And then sitting down with them for an interview or a coffee and you know many of them are attributed by name in the book and others have uh, preferred to remain anonymous so one would quickly discover that common passion for moving the field forward beyond the differences of national positions so that was a very satisfying part of my own learning Uh, the other one was i think the realization that the practitioners need to write and talk more that there is this artificial gulf between uh, the professor the academic and the practitioner diplomat i mean even in some of the labels we use professor of practice in those who manage to cross over i see sometimes mutual disdain across the gulf Uh, Many of the academic colleagues uh, that I work with think that, you know, practitioners are not rigorous enough. uh, They are not objective enough. And whereas a lot of the practitioners think that uh, the academics live in ivory towers. And so I learned that we need to bridge this gulf and we need to find new ways of bringing the practice communities and the research communities together, particularly train the next generation. And then I think the third and final learning for me was just the discipline of getting writing done uh, getting writing done in a way that appeals to a broad a set of readers but also that has some value as a teaching tool as a, as a as a resource intellectual resource for practitioners that was not easy so i did a lot of the writing on long plane journeys and, uh, and the in between moments of of days but that was uh, i think uh, a satisfying experience overall
1: So let's repeat, the title of your book is Nuclear Security Summit History and is published by Paul Grave. At this point, it would be interesting to tell our audience, you know, who is this book for? Who would benefit from this book? Is it for, you know, scholars, for everyone? Who would you recommend this book to?
2: So I would recommend this book to all students and practitioners of international relations anyone who works in the global multilateral, multi-stakeholder space. So it's not just about the nuclear communities, although the NSS is like a case study in this book, uh, but the lessons uh, around process, around leadership involvement, around knowledge-making are relevant for all practitioners and not just multilateral diplomats, but also bilateral diplomats. Uh, students who are NGO activists who work in the uh, global multilateral space at the end of the day in today's interconnected interdependent world there is no solitary learning there has to be collective intelligence we have to bring together particularly if we want to engage the youth we have to find ways to to bring together different geographies of innovation, different communities of innovation together to solve global problems, climate change, the nuclear threats, the threats around data protection, data security, uh, the governance of artificial intelligence. So I would recommend this book to all those who think about international learning in some form or the other. It could be a a teacher in a setting which is international. It could be where you know values are different, and it could be someone who's in a UN agency where you work with colleagues from different cultures, and where you see governments sometimes struggle to get things together to make sense of complex issues and come out with some possible solutions, possible uh, answers.
1: And indeed, one of the takeaways for me from the book was not so much on on the matter of nuclear security itself. One of of you make the case for well-designed multilateral forum, basically. Any final thoughts on that?
2: This is an old, old problem. And when I spoke of theater of knowledge, uh, so uh, there is an Italian philosopher from the 16th century who endeavored to create a theater of memory where all human knowledge uh, could come alive through images, through artifacts. And libraries are, in a sense, uh, an embodiment of that research from Alexandria down to the library that you so ably lead here in uh, Geneva. Uh, Forums, multilateral forums, uh, the challenge is really to raise themselves up from this daily ritual of speeches and meetings and gatherings to this aspiration, this higher purpose of knowledge-making for global good. Uh, So constantly ask themselves, uh, what can I do to really push knowledge construction? Those uh, five or six ways of shifting learning in any domain, nuclear or environmental or social. So I think that would be my general philosophical advice to the forum designers the forum practitioners there are some specific ideas in the book about that and some of the interviews uh, interviewees their quotes in the book highlight some specific thoughts specific suggestions on how we can better design forums i think i should add here In the last two, three years, I've tried to put the insights from this research, this writing into my own practice as uh, an ambassador, as a chair of multilateral negotiations, the negotiations on lethal autonomous weapon systems, the negotiations on a new program for the biological and toxin weapons convention, and the multi-stakeholder work uh, in the UN Secretary General's high-level panel on digital cooperation, which was... uh, for the first time in the history of UN SG's panels were led by two non-government representatives, Jack Ma and Melinda Gates. Uh, so knowledge-making in these forums, bringing together different actors, designing the process so that the best kind of floats up to the top, the best ideas, the cutting edge knowledge comes to the top and then there is also connection to the practice of that knowledge the implementation of that knowledge so that's been a delight um, for me for the past few years and that's what i would recommend to to the readers um, as they look at it at the book for inspiration on multilateralism on multilateral forums
1: i remember that we had the great pleasure of hosting one of the sessions of the high-level panel on digital cooperation here at the library in Geneva. And you were there, of course, co-chairing the panel and leading the discussions together with your your fellow colleague, the uh, the other co-chair, and Jack Ma was there, and Melinda Gates, and a number of eminent personalities were there in our libraries discussing, and I remember there was a vibe to it. And now that you explain it in terms of, you know, letting the best ideas float up, I think that that is an excellent description of what was happening in, in, our, in our room on that day. That was very special. And it was a first for me, even if I'd been working for the UN for over 25 years. And there I thought, this is perhaps what we should be doing as an organization more often. You've seen it as a co-chair. You have spoken to the secretary general a number of times about where you were leading that group and what was coming out of that group do you think that the organization should be doing this more often do you think we will be doing that more often
2: absolutely i think the setting was great so you had all these uh, drawers for the index cards the ultimate analog way of organizing knowledge and and there was the discussion with Melinda Jack and WindSurf, one of the founders of the internet, about the ultimate virtual ways of organizing information, acting on that information. And, and I think the lesson there was that our problems and their eventual solutions essentially lie in the analog world digital yeah we shouldn't get carried away by the power of these tools they're very powerful they need to be used wisely but essentially if we don't organize ourselves as humans in the analog fashion um, uh, we will not solve those problems and i think that's the the challenge for the un the un is the ultimate uh, brand on analog organization of communities, of governments, of international actors. So if it can be reinvigorated and the the Secretary General and others have good plans for that by involvement of other communities, the private sector, the foundations, civil society, uh, citizens, in fact, citizen-centric international learning. And digital now allows you to do those things in in ways that are cost-effective, that are efficient, in terms of time and other resources that would be absolutely fantastic and we have an opportunity the 75th anniversary of the UN is going to be celebrated next year so can we find new ways to do multilateralism in this very complex world but in this world where young people are looking for purpose where the private sector of course it the profit motive drives it but it also realizes that if it doesn't Find a new purpose for itself, it doesn't connect with the SDGs, for example, then the consumers, the markets for it in the future will not be the same as what it is expecting. So there is an opportunity to construct these new ways of knowledge making globally through the UN as a humble convening platform, as a promoter of international learning, and as a convener of these different communities of knowledge making.
1: That's a powerful message. Thank you. So just to come to the conclusion of of this podcast let's go back to your book uh, nuclear security summits A history where can our readers find it Uh, and any other information you want to provide to our audience about what you do your your presence on social media feel free now is the time
2: so the publisher is palgrave uh, macmillan and the book is available also in e-form for download from their website or for ordering on palgrave's website or on amazon i'm really grateful i should mention that to to some of the people who've given short blurbs for the book uh, david holloway at stanford university i admire his work as a nuclear historian uh, david malone uh, who's the rector of the un university someone i have looked up to for a very very long time ambassador rafael grossi who's the now the new director general of the international atomic energy agency distinguished colleague and nuclear learner and Izumi Nakamitsu who is the High Representative for Disarmament Affairs in um, New York. Uh, So if you want to follow this and other digital conversation and my work on Twitter, the Twitter handle is joasampre, G-I-O-S-E-M-P-R-E
1: and I look forward to your feedback and uh, your your comments. Fantastic. I'm sure some of our uh, listeners will contact you on social media uh, as they as they read the book or they become interested in uh, in nuclear security and what what nuclear security negotiation could teach to other negotiating circles, climate change, and many many others. Ambassador Amandeep Gill, thank you for being on the next page with us. All the best to you.
2: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be with you.